All right, Christopher here. Welcome to Do Explain. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my current supporters who inspire me to carry on with this project and make it financially viable as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Big hugs. And while I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, I can't share my vision for Do Explain going forward. I like to work on the podcast full time instead of just a few days a month. I want to build a real platform for the fun and friendly exchange of interesting ideas. And I want to do it ad-free, if possible, because I don't want any ideas to be off-limits for us to explore, and I also want to keep saying dumb shit without repercussions. But to do this, I'll need a steady income, and that's why I need your help. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here, and you want to join me in my vision and become a part of growing this project, consider going over to patreon.com slash doexplain and sign up to become a monthly supporter. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. But I thought maybe it could be fun to let you talk a little bit uh, about some of your amazing articles from Medium that you have uh, written up and that I've read at least twice, all of them, I think. Oh, shit. So, uh, yeah, bored at work, uh, read some Ben Chug, brush up on some stuff, you know? So, yeah, I was uh, I was wondering uh, I was wondering who the four readers were. Now I know two of them are you. So. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, um, and and we've also got some Twitter questions, and some of them kind of tie into uh, the discussion you have in some of your articles here. Nice. So uh, I'm just going to throw one of them out there to begin with, and it's where you write about. Um, sorry for not knowing the exact title, but it's about Pascal's mugging. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I will probably botch it if I try to explain what the thought experiment is. But yeah, can you can you tell me what that article was about? And uh, yeah, explicate the uh, the critiques and ideas in there a little bit. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so there's this famous thought experiment by the philosopher, also Swedish, I believe, uh, Nick Bostrom, mm. um, who uh, is arguing um, that. A certain a certain conception of rationality uh, can lead to certain problems. So um, the thought experiment is as follows: You are walking down the street, um, and a mugger ap- appears beside you and asks for your wallet. And uh, you say, "What? Well, do you have a gun and <laughs> or a knife or something?" <laughs> and, and they say, "No, um, I, I forgot that at home." And you you know uh, try to continue on your way. You're no longer scared, but they say, "Hold on." Um, if you don't give me your wallet, I will torture um, one billion trillion people. Um, <laughs> I have access to like a seventh dimension um, and can summon, I don't know, souls from mm. some underworld or something. But I'm going to basically, um, whatever morality you care about, whether it's just like the suffering of sentient creatures, um, I'm going to ma- I'm going to do some bad shit. Um, I'm going to slice and, some plantains uh, in front of you. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to crush them, <laughs> but you won't even care because you won't even cry. Um and uh and you're like, "Well, that seems silly, you know, like I, you know, I don't believe in a seventh dimension." Um and then they say, "Well, you know, but you can't prove I'm wrong." So, you know, mm. what what's the probability that I'm lying? And you say, "Oh, well, very very low, right? Like one out of one out of a billion, one out of a trillion." Very um, high, right? 
Oh, but, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I was uh, like, oh, what? <laughs> what have I missed? So, yeah, yeah. So, I guess so. What's the yeah? What's the probability that I'm that I'm telling the truth or that I'm that I'm correct? Um, yeah. Very, very low. Um, you assign this like a very low uh, credence, quote unquote. Um, and uh, I mean, the game that is then being played is that for any low probability, they can up the ante of how many people they're gonna torture right and so now the expected value of (laughs) handing over your wallet is um looks good looks positive um Mm. and so the expected value is just um the outcomes uh multiplied by the probability that they happen so um this is you know sort of a mathematical concept but you would take like the utility you get out of some action you multiply it by the probability of that happening um and that gives you the expected value Uh, most people are familiar with expected value as it comes to like you know coin flips or um probabilistic models things like this um but some people also apply this to decision making right and so they think you should maximize the expected value of decisions so you know when you're trying to make a decision you look at like the consequences what would happen if i made that decision you tally up those consequences to get its utility but then you look at um what's my uncertainty around making this decision i've got to assign like a probability to this and so the expected value of that decision is uh you know the the sum total of those consequences multiplied by the probability that they actually happen um Mm. and so the game that's being played here is like well while you're very uh, you have very low confidence that the mugger is like telling the truth or has access to these seven dimensions. You can't disprove it. And so you can't give it a probability of zero um, because no rational agent would ever do that. Um, you can't say for sure with certainty that they're lying. Um, and so on expected value terms, um, you basically have to hand over your wallet because they're claiming to be able to like torture so many people. Right. Um, so is is the claim there then that the the rational choice would actually be to give your yeah. wallet to them? Yeah, exactly. Um oh, man. and I mean people have so at the end of the piece, Bostrom has the the mugger or has the uh, pedestrian, I guess, give the wallet over to the mugger. Um and so so in a way sort of concedes that, you know, the rational person, I guess, has to has to do this. Um and of course this kind of blew up and people that are focused on this kind of decision theory have gone back and forth over like whether it's rational or not, or maybe how to fix um fix the system so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. Um and uh, you know, you maybe you try and decrease your credence at the same by the same amount that the mugger is increasing the number of lives they torture or you add like a logarithmic factor you know you like start yeah. integrating over four-dimensional manifolds or something <laughs> you know like that you, you know there's yeah. been all these articles written about how to adjust your credences in light of pascal's mugging and all of this stuff um and uh but so the, so the, so the umbrella. This is like Bayesianism, right? This is Bayesian decision theory that's going on here. And mm-hmm. under this conception of decision theory, agents um, assign credences to things and then act by maximizing expected utility. So every decision that you have, uh, you you have credences for like how likely different outcomes are, um, and then as you navigate through life you're just making expected value calculations about what's best what's worse according to these credences and then you update these credences with 
the rules of probability. So there's an equation uh, in probability called Bayes' rule uh, that can tell you how to update your your beliefs, your credences, um, mm-hmm. according to evidence um, when you when you encounter new evidence. And um, so implicit in this whole conception is that your beliefs form like a nice probability distribution over every possible thing that can happen, I guess. Um, and then you, you know, you go about solving equations for how to act. Um, and, uh, you could tell maybe by the tone of my voice that I just think this is the wrong (laughs) way to think about rationality. Um, but it is a very, um, it is a very popular way to think about it. Um, even if people don't take it to the full extent of like handing over their wallet to muggers, um, it is a very, dominant form of reasoning um and uh one that i was yeah i think taken with really because i didn't really know there were alternatives honestly um for like a long time um and until i started arguing with vaden and reading popper and i realized Mm. like oh people have thought about this and there are much better ways to think about um decision theory and just how to act in the world and um how to think about uh making progress and et cetera, et cetera. Uh so that's kind of the setup. Did that <laughs> did that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so I thought we could um I want to read a few Twitter questions that are adjacent to this whole idea of probability. Mm, nice. And but first I uh, yeah as someone who knows very, very, very little about both math, probability base how how the algorithm actually works i have zero clue i only know about it at a high abstract level right but it just seems to me that any probability assigned is so arbitrary i don't understand how people can take it seriously like where do you even start you have to start somewhere by attributing these credences and Mm -hmm. how do you do that in any way that isn't laughable and then we have the normal critiques of yeah, what credence should Newton's theory have had past every experimental <laughs> test? It was still a hundred percent false <laughs> in yeah, the end. Yeah. Like it's it's just uh, it seems so arbitrary to me. But um, yeah, yeah, so maybe you you just want to respond to that, and then I just want to ask uh, one of the Twitter questions, which which is, what is the proper role of probability then? When, when is it used correctly? And we can include Bayesian Beish, thinking there too. And when mm-hmm. is it misapplied? Yeah, so I mean, you've highlighted a key distinction in the Bayesian community, which is called objective versus subjective Bayesians. Um, mm. And objective Bayesians think there is an objectively correct way to set your priors. And by priors, I just mean like the beliefs or credences you have at the beginning, um, mm. I guess before you're c- confronted with evidence. So objective Bayesians think there's like uh, the right way to set this prior. Um, and if you don't set your prior like that, then you're an irrational agent. Um, Mm. subjective Bayesians are a little more relative when it comes to that. They say, you know, setting your prior is not, um, the most important thing, um, because given enough evidence, um, regardless of how you set your prior, if you're updating correctly, you will converge at a similar answer, right? So even if you and I start with like different priors, uh, Mm -hmm. if we're using Bayes rule to update our beliefs, um, then we'll converge uh, eventually given enough evidence so where you start like doesn't really matter um so anyway this is all to say people are undecided i guess in that community about setting your priors but in terms of the 
it being um, arbitrary, yeah, I mean, it certainly it certainly is arbitrary. Um, there's no law of physics that say, says we have to assign credences to things um, to act in the world. And so this is all, in my view, just a misapplication of math or like taking nice probabilistic tools and we're trying to apply it to every area of human decision making. Um, yeah. And while it can be useful for making certain decisions, uh, I don't think it's useful to like walk around and have uh, little credences attached to everything. <laughs> um, so what is it useful for? If you can explicate on that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think probability is a mathematical tool like most others. So uh, I, you could ask a similar question of like, when is group theory useful? Right. When is like differential geometry useful? Um, and I think they all just have different domains of applicability. They're just tools. They're instruments we're using to like navigate the world. So um, for probability, probability is a powerful mathematical tool. Um, and for this reason, shows up in a lot of applications. So, you know, my day job, I design algorithms and think about that. And um, you can inject um algorithms with like a certain amount of randomness um to overcome like adversarial um adversarial agents basically and to and so you can analyze um you can yeah basically advertently inject certain algorithms with certain amounts of randomness and this allows you to analyze them um in certain ways mm. or um another important use of probability is just modeling right so um if you're at like a roulette table um there are right and wrong answers to the, like the correct probabilistic model to have um at that table or like blackjack right like given the cards you've seen so far what's the probability um that your the next card is going to be like a red seven or rolling dice or something right um and so mm -hmm. these are all models applied in very well-controlled environments when all the inputs and outputs and assumptions are well understood and explicitly stated um, exactly. which is not the case in life at all right like we don't understand <laughs> that i don't even know what the inputs and outputs for all, all these things would be let alone all the options let alone all the things we could assign probabilities to to um and so something like rolling a die right there's no actual probability going on in the physical process right like if you were laplace's demon and could calculate everything um putting aside like chaos theory then um you wouldn't have you wouldn't need to assign a probability um one sixth to like rolling a two right because you would you could compute like the the uh spin of someone's hand the wind in the room the height from which they're throwing it etc and yeah, there's only one uh, actual outcome Exactly. You would know um, that it's like going to be a three or something. But for the purposes of gambling, for the purposes, for most of our other purposes, just assigning a one-sixth, having a model that assigns a one-sixth probability to these outcomes are is like really useful and good. It's saying nothing true about the world. Um, it's just helping us navigate it and think about it in certain ways. Um, and I think Deutsch actually has a talk that he gave a while ago about eliminating randomness from a lot of our physical theories so i think just because yeah. probability is so useful and has been so widely applied to with such great success people have confused the tool of probability with probability being an aspect 
of life um, when it seems like that's mostly wrong. Um, I guess there's still some debate over whether like quantum mechanics is inherently uh, probabilistic, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't really say there. But um, but in general, yeah, it's just it's a tool we're using when we want to like model certain situations and um, how accurately we want to model it will um, factor into like what what uh, probabilistic model we're using. Um, and so I think actually Vaden gives a nice example somewhere where he says for, you know, for, yeah, for most purposes, assigning the one six probability to the die rolling is fantastic. But if your life depended on predicting the next roll of the die, you would probably come up with a better, more sophisticated model, right? You would like train some giant neural network <laughs> to, to, mm-hmm. to like, to try and predict the movement of everyone's hand, like this person's hand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. you would do like everything you could, you would spend like a decade trying to model everything and you'd probably come up with a better more precise model than like one sixth one sixth one sixth one sixth right um yeah yeah did that no make, okay uh, so that makes sense yeah no, no that is that does make sense and it, it ties into the uh, standard critique from the paparians or deutschians that yeah any, any process that isn't uh, affected by creativity and knowledge creation because as soon as you have that, then probability goes out the window. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. And there's this whole, like, I think it's easy to get carried away with the probability stuff because it is, it's so well developed mathematically. There's so much you can do there. And so people are tempted to, like, start applying it to, uh, like, future growth of knowledge. So there's, like, people will assign probabilities to us developing AI in the next uh, decade in the next yeah, two decades yeah. they'll assign probabilities to us going extinct um assign probabilities to um to, yeah, making the next big great breakthrough or like china going to war with the u.s or something like this and yeah. these are just not this is not the domain of probability you're they're taking a tool um outside of its domain and uh and and trying to apply it um because it's just like you said there's no proper way to model um those kind of things right whether the u.s goes to war with china will depend on the political and cultural situation the ideas of the people involved whether there were threats made against <laughs> um uh, like the president's life for example um what the economic situation was like um there's no way to have a probabilistic model over uh this thing um at least not a not a good one um so <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i, I mean it's such a it's a smart hoax because it's it gives weight to it, right? So when someone mm. says, you use math, for, for someone like me who doesn't know math that well, it's just mm. like, oh, shit, look at all those equations. It must be solid, right? Yeah. So yep. it, it kind of reminds me of something else that I dislike, which is using neuroscience in such an arbitrary way where people say, mm. uh, oh, we found the neurocorrelate of this right. particular thing and right. it's this big thing and everyone gets so excited oh we have the neural cor- like everything has a neural correlate like <laughs> yeah, going yeah. to get milk at the store has a neural correlate and and when people say this changes your brain everything yeah, changes change your, your brain, brain. like yeah, what exactly. are you talking about what's the and i i know you wrote that somewhere that once we yeah some people think that once we map the whole brain with correlates then we'll understand the brain Mm. no we'll have a map of the brain that we don't have any idea what it means or how to use it until we have a theory 
of how to use it. So yeah, we'll have um, the same thing we have now. It just won't be a wet map. It'll just be a, yeah, a dry yeah, map. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, of course, that can be useful yeah. to some extent, but it's dependent on the theories we use. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, so yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And it also kind of bleeds into another article you wrote, uh, Cliodynamics. Was the was the main topic there? And I wrote in parentheses, "The fuck is this shit?" Because <laughs> I've never heard that word before. Um, but uh, but before that, there was another fun question here about probability. So, okay, Ben, w would you take a ten thousand to one bet that a human will land on Mars by twenty thirty? How about a one to one bet? Can you make these decisions without any notion of scalar probability? No idea what that is. Oh, um, so 10, wait, 10,000 to one. Is that in my, that humans favor. will land on Mars? Uh, yeah, it's in my favor. Um, yeah. Uh, right. So, okay. This is getting at the notion of like Dutch books, right? Like if, and so a Dutch book is just, it's a tool, um, that uh, this kind of thinking uses the Bayesians use to argue that you have to have well calibrated probabilities over your beliefs or you're going to lose out on these bets right there's like if you don't have well calibrated probabilities or probabilities over things that like don't sum to one or like obey the rules of the probability calculus then mm -hmm. you're vulnerable to what they call dutch books which is like people can offer you a sequence of bets and if you bet in accordance with your probability then you're going to lose money because you're like not sufficiently well calibrated so i think maybe this is what that question is getting at mm -hmm. um but my answer to the question would be uh it, de you know, it depends what the odds are. Um, it depends what kind of mood I'm in. Um, it depends, like, yeah, how much, like, how much money are we betting? You know, like, <laughs> is it like, is it like five dollars, four dollars? Um, yeah, but that, okay, so so that that's kind of a cop out though. Like, if he he specified ten thousand to one odds in your favor, okay. I would assume that a human will land on Mars by twenty thirty. How much would you bet on that? Well, what's the? Oh, how much would I bet on it? Yeah. Um, uh, or may maybe it's uh, I I don't know if that's what he means or if he just means that if he said let's bet a thousand dollars on that would you would you agree or not? But they're kind of adjacent, right? Uh, I guess I mean a thousand dollars. No, I probably wouldn't bet a thousand dollars because I just don't have a thousand dollars. Would I bet a hundred bucks? Uh, yeah, maybe I'd probably bet a hundred dollars. Um, um, of course you would. I, Ten thousand to one. <laughs> 20, but 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 i mean yeah i mean it's all about uh yeah but like yeah. why why do i have to classify my um so let's let's say i decide to take the first bet and not take the second bet um mm -hmm. what's the rule of rationality that says i have to assign like why do i have to pr have a probability beforehand assigned and then make these bets like where where does that have to come in um I don't think it has to. It's it's a matter of explanation, right? How how uh, yeah? How well is the technology doing? How many people are working on this? Uh, is does yeah. it sound reasonable to you based on what, what knowledge we have? Yeah, and it would just be a guess, right? It, yeah, does it sound reasonable to me? I would talk to a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, maybe I'd yeah look at the look at the rate of progress, but and maybe I do even assign it some prob. Maybe I assign it some probability at the at the end of the day um probably not because i don't know what that probability would be capturing but i don't think in any way that that probability reflects anything real about the situation it would just be a tool i'm using at the time to try and like reason about whether i should take these bets um and so maybe i wouldn't use probability anything, right 
it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So maybe I would use probability in that case to try and reason through it, but probably not because I, I, I have no idea. I don't honestly know what it means to assign a probability um, to the to whether we're going to land on the on Mars by by 2030. Like, like, what what does that statement mean? Like, how could you be wrong or right about that statement? Right. Like, what what's the counterfactual you're even considering there? Um, like the counterfactual for probabilistic models for like the die roll are like the five other options of like um ah fuck this is getting confusing i, I back <laughs> off that but yeah, i don't want to go down that hole no but, um, no that's cool i'm yeah, just yeah, pretending so. i understand what you mean i'm like <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, no, st- I started confusing myself so if I could yeah yeah um but yeah so anyway so would i take the bet um yeah probably the first one i don't know about the second one depends on how much i was betting but um yeah i don't think scalar probability like really comes into it honestly yeah 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 so actually ben uh i want to jump to to talk about uh immortality uh, a fun philosophical question but before that actually uh, it bled in uh your answer to the these previous questions and your article there into the idea of cryodynamics that i just mentioned so can mm. you just uh, talk a little about that article too because i i found that interesting as a continuation of popper's critique of historicism as far as i understood it so uh yeah what was that article about and what is cryodynamics for fuck's sake yeah this was this was fascinating i saw an article in the atlantic um i think around christmas time uh last year that was talking about this thing called uh i'm not i'm still not sure if it's cleodynamics or cleodynamics i think it might be cleo because i think they're going for um one of the greek gods um but anyway uh, so cleodynamics, um, it is honestly modern day historicism combined with a bunch of sophisticated like, data science mm. and mathematical models to, I think, try and hide the fact that it's historicism. Or maybe to be slightly more generous, it is a lot of interesting historical research that tries to analyze it in new ways using, um, you know, the the topic the hot topic these days like big data and tries to develop models of things um and part of that is possibly useful not harmful um and maybe fruitful Uh, i'm honestly i'm not sure um you know analyzing history and questions and stuff in different ways is is fine it's great um so power to them for trying to do stuff like that but then (laughs) <laughs> they sneak in this element of trying to use this newfound knowledge and predict the course of human history and uncover trends and cycles to history um, that they believe forms um, uh, this forms the story of of uh, civilization. So they think that um, I think the key word they use is secular cycles. So there's like cycles of um, oh, abundance um and and creativity and progress and then decline and violence followed by another cycle etc uh and so this is exactly what popper was talking about when he wrote the book the poverty of historicism um which is uh, you know i recommend anyone to read it it's a great book um but the core of his argument just boils down to the fact that we can't predict 
the course of human history, the future course of human history, because it depends on our ideas. It depends on our knowledge. And by definition, we can't know today what we're only going to learn tomorrow, right? We're only what we're only going to discover tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because these ideas, um, you know, political ideas, um, cultural ideas, economic ideas, these influence the course of human affairs and of events um, and are responsible for us making so much progress up to this point, um, it is silly to think that um, it's history is not going to depend on future ideas, but is going to revert to some sort of like historical trend. But so, so Popper, when he wrote this, which I think was um, in the thirties, forties was arguing uh, specifically the biggest, the two biggest things he's arguing were like the doctrines underlying Marxism and fascism. Right. Um, And, so Marxism is uh, undergirded by like uh, scientific socialism and historical materialism. Um, and, it, you know, it's called scientific because it's a theory of the evolution of society um, hmm. from like feudalism um, up through uh, capitalism and then capitalism because the means of production get ever more uh, sequestered to like a tiny and tinier class. Um, and the gap between the rich and the poor expands. Uh, this eventually culminates in revolution and then this gives rise to um a communist utopian state which is like the end state of human civilization and so anyway there's a whole theory i'm simplifying a bit of course but it's like a whole theory of um of communism and how it is it's a predictive science it was taken as as a so so now it's i think it's more correctly just viewed upon as a sort of falsified political theory but i think reading popper's work it it it's it's fascinating like how how many people viewed this as like scientific truth right like the coming communist revolution was was scientific truth um and so it's scary to me that this thing called cleodynamics is reverting to that direction right thinking like Mm. we can uncover long-term trends about about human history um and uh it's not only wrong but it's it's quite dangerous right and can lead people to think that uh they can't that uh like war or famine or poverty is inevitable we can't do anything about it um the best thing we can do is like pick pick your side in the war to come right between Mm. um the bourgeois capitalists and the peasantry so you like you better pick your side you better do what you do what you can to bring about um the next stage of history right and so so marx's famous line here was like lessen the birth pangs of history yeah. and this is what he meant right so you can't you can help sort of summon the next epoch of humanity um you can't stop it but you might as well try and be on on the right side of history um and so yeah so anyway this is kind of uh so it's it's not the whole so if you look up there's like a journal and stuff surrounding this um and most of what they seem to study is seems relatively har- harmless but then they sneak in these elements of like being a predictive science mm. for human history and i saw that and just you know shit my pants a little bit honestly i got i got yeah, pretty yeah. frightened so i wrote this article in a frenzy um trying to argue against it yeah, yeah no i i appreciated the article and yeah so it's it's really creepy there because it it has the potential i don't know if that's the right word because it's a negative thing but it has the the risk of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy then as Mm -hmm. you allude to right so if everyone thinks it's inevitable then it will become inevitable because we're all gonna uh, bring it into existence right yeah exactly exactly so um 
Yeah. yeah. And he'll, yes. I mean, so one, one of the scarier examples was that he was citing, um, and one of the pieces, um, sort of the main fellow behind this, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he was citing um, some of the violence um, coming in Paris or that had happened in Paris and was arguing, um, oh, this is, this is just a sign that we're about to enter one of these cycles of violence and vi- violence is going to speak uh, peak and whatnot. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, like, what if enough people start believing this, right? We're going to think violence is inevitable. And so when we see like a uh, violent protest ride, instead of trying to like get to the bottom of like what the grievances are and sort it out in like a peaceful way, uh, we're just going to think that's inevitable. And then we're, you know, we're going to pick sides. We're going to become violent ourselves. Um, and so yeah if enough people sort of believe that something is inevitable like you said it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and um he's already saying that about about uh certain periods of violence which is yeah hugely frightening yeah and i remember you making a point which i liked which was yeah how how people don't understand that you can find if you look close enough you'll find patterns in anything even Mm. random data so yep. the idea that you have these, oh, we have, I think you wrote these 50-year cycles of violence and it's coming around. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's important to understand how statistical analysis yep. works in those kind of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it depends what you quantify, like how, what data sets you're looking at, what do you call violence? Um, I think... Do I include in the piece that there's some funny um, interview with him where he says he excludes the American Civil War? from his uh data set it's like well okay um forgive me if i if i don't take your data cleaning methods at face face value then like how can you say there's cyclical periods of violence if you're going to ignore like some of the largest wars it's just bizarre but yeah (laughs) no but i mean that's such a this is such a great moment to make the papyrian point of observation is theory laden right you have Mm -hmm. to choose what you're actually looking for yeah in the first place exactly so um yeah let me let me sneak in a Patreon Twitter question there Ooh. from uh one of my favorite peeps it's uh, Amaro Coberle who did the artwork for the podcast and also have just finished crafting a dope website that we're going to release soon for do explain. Ooh, so, uh, I saw you had it linked in your Twitter bio and I clicked on it and asked me for a password so yes, I just figured sir. I wasn't cool You're enough. You're not to- VIP dude. Your mom is going to get the password. You won't. <laughs> but uh, you guys will be having no, some so, Swedish so, party. Yeah, pronouncing your last <laughs> yeah. name correctly. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're gonna we're gonna release it soon. It's uh, it's uh, done very soon, including a web shop with merch. So oh, uh, this is gonna Mara. be this is gonna change the world, dude. This Holy can't shit, be predicted man. what it's gonna do to the world, but it's gonna be pretty major, I assume. I'm gonna have to be uh, your last dumb guest. From here on out, you gotta have real smart people. Hey, <laughs> I've actually noticed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, psychoanalyze you a little bit. You're very high on the the whole um, uh, self deprecation. I think maybe mm. that's a way to try to to dumb yourself down because of this that we talked about in the beginning of trying to learn more so you can come across as smarter. Just just throwing it out there. You can do with with it what you want. Um, no, let's wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, I I I missed your second point there. So. I'm doing it to um to dumb myself down so that I can Yeah, sorry. What was the second point? So that I can appear smarter? 
Yeah, like, the whole and now I'm just projecting my own problems on you because I've done this. But yeah. the the idea that yeah, I constantly have to learn, as we talked about in the beginning, because mm-hmm. somehow I don't feel good enough or smart enough. I have to prove myself, and a way to lower the expectations on me to begin with is to say that I'm not that smart. I gotcha. Right? Yeah, I do. I definitely. Right? I definitely do it too much. Um, I think there is an appropriate level and I think it can like often put people at ease with you just demonstrating like you don't take yourself too seriously. Like, you know, I know I'm not God's gift to anything. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's all it's all relaxed here. But there is uh, there is a point at which when you pass it and then (laughs) people around you could start getting uncomfortable you know if you do like what what do you think of me then because now (laughs) you've gone overboard man because i think you're fucking smart as shit and then you're just saying you're dumb what does that make me bro (laughs) no man we're all universal explainers come on yeah (laughs) that's true that's true but um yeah so so amoro asks and this has nothing to do with what we just spoke about but i i wanted to mix it up a bit so what does ben think of the notion that it is racist to advocate for the tight control of AGI. If AGI are people, systematically curtailing their freedom would be a crime, and excessive worry about the issues surrounding AI safety would be just as racist as worrying about any other group of people being inherently more dangerous than any other group of people. Hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. I So I've heard, I think I heard uh, Deutsch make this, point on sam harris podcast and haven't thought about it too much since um i uh well i think yeah there's a big distinction to be made there between before agi is developed um and after it's developed and we can maybe know or not if it's conscious or sentient um i think if you know if we do develop agi that is sentient and capable of suffering then we have created agents that are worthy of moral consideration um Mm -hmm. whether they're you know as smart as us or not um then i think yeah now we are in relationship to things that we we need to extend um, moral patienthood to i i i thought i heard in the question maybe not was there like an undertone of should we hurry up to build these things because uh if we don't hurry up to build them we're like depriving future beings of sentience um did i hear that in the question at all or or no i think that was completely made up actually that i just made that up yeah yeah okay nice yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah so you, I might, think... you might answer that too because that's interesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice try dude <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um oh, unfortunately i don't even have any politician type answer it, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah did i hear in your question <laughs> a concern well, about universal healthcare? yeah um, but i mean it's uh, it's interesting with because and and i haven't given this any thought at all i just stole david's uh, remark to harris in my second episode of do explain mm-hmm. and i said why worry about ai is racist now that's a title for you right there yeah um, <laughs> But but it is interesting because if we play with the idea that – so let's say that, that we, we didn't know there were Asians in the world and – or we make up some new some new uh, um, ethnicity that we haven't, that we haven't discovered yet. 
Uh, <laughs> it would be racist. Into hot water real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you love to Good be luck, there, dude. right? That's where you love to be, right? Um, yeah, but so th- that sounds really racist to think about how to, uh, yeah, how to tightly control the risks of encountering these. And I, I, I'm not sure if the analogy is perfect, since I mean we're th- constructing them, yeah, yeah, and they are. Although fundamentally the same then, if we take the whole universal explainer point to heart, mm-hmm. they would still be in different mediums. We don't know what it would mean to have a creative sentient mind within a hardware like a laptop instead of a, a biology. I mean, we. I, yeah. I, I think we're more – we should be more careful about the um, – yeah, the the risks of creating sentient suffering algorithms that we don't that we're not aware that we've created or something like that, then be afraid of of them taking over and killing us. And David always makes the point that the more we shackle them, the more they will have a point to actually yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. try to revolt and and take over. So um yeah. Yeah. I think I would remain agnostic. I mean, I'm not um I think where I'm where I'm at with the AI debate is I think we're just we don't have the theories that we need to be able to develop AGI. And so I'm not sure how to think about the consequences of developing AGI when like we just don't have necessary theories of like creativity. We we need like a philosophical revolution basically before we understand how to build AGI because right now it's just all empiricism more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we start developing those theories that might give us greater insight into like suffering that is or is not capable by like silicon based life and things like that um, but I think I'm not as confident as the as some people are that like AI will never pose a risk or like they will just be the humans basically and so we don't have to worry about it um i i'm 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 not sure what to think about that i'm i'm just like kind of agnostic about that um but i think we'll have a better idea about how to evaluate those kind of arguments when we actually have a theory for like how to build agi uh which we're missing right now so on Mm -hmm. most of that kind of stuff i'm pretty agnostic yeah yeah all right so curveball here so should we want to be immortal, Ben? Hell's yeah, man. I think we got to freaking go for it. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, we just finished... Yeah, so in Immortality, so we just finished talking about uh, Bostrom in the context of Pascal's mugging. Um, and while, you know, he writes a lot of stuff that I'm not the biggest fan of, he wrote this one essay called The Fable of the Dragon Tyrant, um, which is an allegory for death right so there's this town and every year they have to send there's yeah the small town and basically like the hobbit sort of you know you have the small town and you have a dragon that lives in the nearest mountain and every year they have to send like a certain proportion of the people in the town to be eaten by the dragon Mm. um and throughout the story you have people saying um you know, this is just our way of life. Uh, we shouldn't try and kill the dragon. Um, giving, sending people <laughs> off to be eaten by the dragon gives us meaning, right? Like, what would life mean if if you weren't 
if we didn't have to you didn't have to look uh at the prospect of being eaten by a dragon at the end of it right this like allows us to live sort of meaningful fulfilling lives um and i think the story does a good job of saying like um this is just sort of an artificial constraint imposed on us by nature and if if we can throw it off i think that would be that would be great honestly um and we would find meaning in other ways right like if we if we um if you got punched in the face every day <laughs> uh you, you know if that was just like the status quo of the human condition then we'd probably have just so stories about how being punched in the face every day before you go to sleep that's really what gives me meaning you know and you just like want to embrace it and think about how lucky you are the rest of the day by not being punched in the face um yeah. And obviously that seems silly. And I think death is basically just an extrapolation of that. Like um, we, you know, I think we're smart and creative enough to have meaning in our lives without needing lives to necessarily come to an end after, you know, these meat bags are walking around in start mm. falling apart after like 80 or 90 years. So yeah, uh, yeah I, I think we should go for it, dude. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so it's interesting that the, the way you chose to answer that and the objection you went for first is probably the one, uh, or rather the argument for why we shouldn't want to be immortal, uh, hmm. is probably the one I'm most sympathetic to. The idea that there's something about knowing that we're going to end that gives some extra gist and fervor to life. I'm not sold on that, and I lean towards what you said there, but... um. But in general, I think I actually held. I, I was in a red, red. How do you say that? Rhetoric, rhetoric class. Oh in, yeah, rhetoric, uh, at university, yeah. and you have to hold uh, these speeches. Um, and I did one where, where you're supposed to, you know, ethos and pathos and logos or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. And oh, so I chose this this topic here. And yeah, I think in general, people have the first of all the mistaken view that. You, it has to it has to suck to grow old you're gonna get all these diseases and get more tired and all your friends and family die of course that's not fun for you and if that's inevitable i wouldn't want to live forever as a sick 100 year old who just don't, don't die from from uh, his diseases right yeah. so i think that's a mistaken in, uh, intuition and if it's an engineering problem then then we can get rid of that and then i think the second thing is that people think we're gonna get bored but I think that's easily disputed too, because you, when you have, when I have fun today, or when you have fun today, it's just as fun as it's been when you had fun ten years ago, or five years mm -hmm. ago, or, or presumably twenty years in the future. I don't think the state of fun gets any less fun. It's not like taking a drug, and each time you take it, it gets a little more boring. Fun mm -hmm. seems to be something else, and so I think you're going to feel joy just the same. And and if you say well, I'm going to have done everything, experienced everything. Well, no, because uh, maybe you've traveled everywhere on the planet, but that's not to say that it's not fun to go to fucking Mars or travel to another dimension or... Or slice a plantain, you know? Yeah, 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 dude. <laughs> and so uh, so I think that um, I think that's a mistaken intuition people have as well. And then there's kind of the... Um, yeah, the moral element there of... 
people are bad, people are vermin, we're destroying the planet. We should as well just die. We shouldn't have this hybris that... But I just think it's all really strange to think that way. And I think that um, if it's true that life can just get continually better, and I really like your idea of the the punching in the face all the time, like, um, yeah, life could be so fucking good. I don't know if you saw the Luli Tanit um, cut together that this Graham Basilio guy did on Twitter. Where he oh, I did, yeah. Something from yeah. Do Explain, actually, and then uh, to some cool stuff. And that, it's, um, yeah, I really think we can get much, much further. And it's weird to say that if you don't want to die today, why would you ever want to die all of a sudden? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I definitely, you raise a good point, and I want my answer to be conditional on the fact that we would continue to live good, healthy lives, both physically and mentally. So yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't want to live as like a perpetual 120 year old like, <laughs> amnesia and yeah. you know it walking around in my walker all the time. That would be a bit of a bummer. But um, yeah, can, presumably though, if we figure out how to live forever, our, yeah, hopefully by that point we've also figured out uh, the knowledge required to rid ourselves of like lots of the lots of mental decay and disease and etc. So yeah, but that's yeah, so counterintuitive yeah. when you don't view things like that that problems are soluble in that way and it also it's kind of you you don't really want to accept that because let's say we're the last generation who don't get to be immortal that's way yeah. worse than just accepting that everybody <laughs> dies right so yeah I've, i have thought about that like if you're if your kids or something are like getting the immortal oh, injection and <laughs> you're like already too old that you know you can't be saved or even i mean think of like your parents or something right like if you got the injection and mm-hmm. your parents were going to be like the last generation to to die that shit would be sad um i mean i would still take it i think but <laughs> shit would be sad you know <laughs> yeah yeah no it is but I, and i mean there's something very romantic about the uh, up and down yin and yang i know alan watts who's one of my idols of course he spoke mm. he was my entry point to philosophy so so uh he, he's awesome and uh and his laugh i'm working on the <laughs> you know deep belly yeah rumbling but uh but he has this cool analogy you know with um you can have you can be so excited to wake up in the morning and you have the best day and everything is so fun but eventually you'll reach a point where you're just you want nothing more than go to sleep and it would be torture to be to be awake and uh i don't mm. think that holds when we take the physiology out of the picture um actually or we could get some some kind of um yeah i i don't see how that would be relevant if we can solve all the miserable miserable stuff yeah yeah exactly um yeah yeah there is an interesting question around mental health and stuff um which i hope we would also have like gone a long way towards helping resolve like mental health issues and whatnot um if we were going to live forever but that would do some interesting things to our psychology i think Mm -hmm. um and probably at that point self-harm would become an even bigger issue than it is now it's obviously a big issue now but um if Mm. we could live forever then like yeah self-harm would like take on momentous importance sort of so it'd be important to like sort out mental health um as much as is possible with a breakthrough like that but it feels somewhat possible, doesn't it, that we would have figured that out if engineering, physical engineering gets that far, that 
we'll we'll figure out mental health to at least a uh, fairly good extent. Maybe not. Maybe they're separable. I mean, uh, but one would hope. Yeah, one would hope. Um, honestly, that's one of the things um, I really hope for the future is like we figure out a lot of whether it's cures or just um, like psychotherapy or something to help with a lot of the mental health. Like I just I have so many friends who are like physically healthy and very smart um, whose like biggest obstacles in life are mental health obstacles. And yeah. uh, as someone who's just been so lucky around that stuff, like I, you know, I'm just generally pretty optimistic and this is another thing I think we just don't choose, right? You're just, um, I just find I have like a pretty positive um, outlook on things most of the time, which is it's not something I worked on. It's just, um, uh, it's, yeah, not, not a choice I made. Um, but I, you know, there's so many people who have the opposite thing. And it's yeah. like such a sad, it's so sad, man. It's like, honestly, one of the things that breaks my heart the most is like just seeing awesome people crippled by mental health. Like, um, yeah, I really hope that in the next, however many years we can like really sort some of that stuff out. Cause I think that would make life better for so many people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, anyway, definitely. that was a weird tangent, but uh, no, and I mean that, that kind of somber things. Up yeah, there. no, I, I like that. Make, <laughs> make everything more depressing. That's great. No, yeah, but uh, that's my job. We share that sentiment though, and I think it kind of uh, glides over nicely to uh, yeah, the whole idea of suffering, right? Because when mm. we spoke before this conversation, you said something like, "You don't think you've ever really suffered or really been in in a lot of mental pain like that." And uh, I wanted to punch you in the face, but uh, <laughs> no, no, that's that's actually great. Well, it would give my life meaning. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but but so that's what I'm wondering then, because I I guess you can draw an analogy to what we talked about with the immortality. Everything can get better, and maybe life would just be the 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 less suffering, the better. But it also seems to be something to either the point that contrast can add to life, and mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, suffering can lead you to look into things and deal with things that you might not uh, have felt obliged to look into otherwise. Mm. And so in the end, it ends up being a really good thing for you. I guess I, I, I don't like that argument that much. I can see a lot of problems with it. But at the same time, I feel like I'm a much better person now because of my my own issues uh, than I, I think I would have been. But um, yeah, what what are your intuitions on that? Yeah, I uh, I'm confused here. I think I mean I think the first thing I'd want to do is separate out voluntary and involuntary suffering. I think mm-hmm. so. I I think I would claim that involuntary suffering is basically always bad. Mm. Um, I can't really think of an instance of involuntary. So it's true that involuntary suffering can lead people to have like amazing insights and appreciate life more. Um, but I think there are probably other ways to yeah, get anything those can do that then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So um, uh, having near death experiences and stuff, and like losing mm-hmm. close friends and family, can lead you to like um, be happier, be healthier, um, etc. Which is great. But uh, yeah, I think there are other ways to get those insights. Um, so I think involuntary suffering, I'd want to claim, is basically always bad. Um, I think voluntary suffering on the other hand mm, can be good um and so i just think of think of like going to the gym or think of like being on a sports team with people um when i was in grad school i rode 
and and uh mm. like rode on a boat um and uh so we you know i'd wake up at like 5 30 um go row on the river for like an hour and a half uh before class every day and <laughs> Dude. that that was some serious suffering like <laughs> both in terms of the waking up but just like being yeah. on the water trapped in this little fucking vessel you know pulling as hard as you can uh with like seven other dudes everyone grunting and sweating hmm. um and that is <laughs> do you have you something know, you want to tell us dude <laughs> Definitely yeah. Cool. yeah i mean my my nights were similar, just uh, <laughs> not, not, on, <laughs> not on the boat, you know. Yeah. But uh, but so that yeah, that was like serious amounts of suffering, but it was voluntary, and it really um, it gave my life more meaning than it would have had otherwise that year, and also created like friendships much more quickly than I would have thought otherwise possible. Like there there's something about like being on a team with people or just like enduring suffering with mm-hmm. people that brings people closer together um and i think we see both the positive and and severely negative aspects of this when we like send young men off to war right so people will often come back ha- having said they feel like so close to the people for example in their platoon they like can't even relate to other people anymore and like mm-hmm. the sort of brotherhood they felt there was incredible um and so but i think there are so I think sports and whatnot um, are actually ways, I think they're cool cultural innovations to try and get past those problems, right? To try and like give us places where we can suffer with each other um, mm. and like experience defeat and uh, victory and contest with people in like much safer spaces, but try and sort of replicate psychologically um, the conditions where like we can glean insights, we can make fast friendships, et cetera. And so I think, and all of that stuff, I think involves voluntary suffering. So yeah, those would be my, those would be my preliminary tentative thoughts about that. I guess there's one other category sort of that is like, I guess it's sort of involuntary suffering, but like, what about suffering after a close friend or like family member dies or something? So that's obviously involuntary but yeah, I was gonna ask, what do you mean? Did you kill them? <laughs> yeah, but um, do, do, so when you envision like a a better life, a perfect life, does it involve not suffering after close friends and family die? Oh, like, that's it what you mean. Seems so like there's an appropriate, a, uh. like even the knowledge that you are going to suffer if something happens to them can compel you to like take more care of them now. Be you know be a better son in my case fucking facetime my parents more often than i than i would yeah. otherwise right um so yeah so i yeah i don't know that's uh there's there's my uh there's a yeah. big set of confusion no i like you, I, I mean i like that um <laughs> that distinction between voluntary and voluntary i guess the question would be and i don't see why it wouldn't but i guess someone could object and say well you can't replicate the the strong bond and connection you can find with involuntary suffering that you have to endure together with mm. something that you try to do with voluntary suffering. But I, I don't see why that would be the case, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I could see how going to war and it's like a life and death situation, how that would really uh, etch you together. But that's just a matter of knowing how, right? Of knowledge. I, I, I doubt yeah. it's a law of nature that it can't happen another yeah, yeah. way. And yeah, I think... 
for myself, I guess I've wanted to contextualize my own problems as, oh, but if I hadn't had them, I wouldn't be. But but it's also, you also have the power to interpret it as, it was shitty, but now I'm here and it's I've ended up in a good place. So uh, I might be biased there when I try to find value in involuntary in suffering, as you put it. I um yeah, I don't think those arguments hold. So so I agree with you on that. But it's interesting to think about would do we want to retain the suffering aspects of certain things um as as you said, grieving loved ones and stuff like that. Um I don't know. I don't have a strong intuition there because I don't really see an inherent point to me feeling bad after someone is gone. Are you saying like for the per- for you yourself you would want to cuz it, it seems kind of paradoxical, right? Cuz you don't want to f- suffer. Yeah. But you want d- does does the suffering have to be there to actually isn't it the same f- flaw as saying that death gives meaning to life that suffering when someone is gone gives meaning to the relationship when they're there. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know either. I mean, I guess part of I, part of my intuition here is that the suffering undertaken after like a close friend passes is intertwined very closely with like just remembering them and like celebrating uh, their life um, and retracing them in your memories, etc. And just like, and those are going to be, I think that is something that I want to do when people, um, I mean, we can not even when they die, just when someone just like talk about endings, right? Talk about someone leaving. Yeah. Uh, and you're like not going to see them for a while. Um, and just like remembering them, celebrating them, etc., is going to be a painful process, but is also probably a necessary aspect of that close relationship. Like uh, there's like gotta be something about the element of closure there that you're not going to get if you uh, don't go through that process or, or something. So um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just trying to think like if you could get rid of, if you could choose what elements of suffering to get rid of in your life, would you choose, mm-hmm. um, would you choose that element? Would you choose to not suffer after like a close friend passes? Um, I don't think I would. Honestly, um, no, but that, don't that lead some credence to the idea that there is something more than just romanticism to the idea that things things end and things don't last forever? Um, because I can't I can't just drop it wholeheartedly. I can see the <laughs> arguments we've made, but I still feel like there's something about the potential loss of something that makes it a, a little better. Yeah, maybe. More beautiful um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, on the other hand, you hear, I think a lot of people have regrets about like not spending enough time with, for example, their friends or family, and then someone dies, and then they're like plagued by regret after the fact. Um, oh, yeah, but that's because they were dickheads and didn't <laughs> take advantage <laughs> right. beforehand, right? But if you're aware and you don't take it for granted, you truly, because I think most people don't truly and I include myself there, truly understand that they're going to be gone someday, if, yeah. barring some some big discovery, right? That's that's really hard to take on board. And I think if you do what Alan Watts also said, to, to contemplate death often, 
Mm-hmm. And it's a sto- sto- um, stoistic technique as well to negatively visualize your day. How can it go uh, as badly as I can imagine? And yeah. then you appreciate everything you already have. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something something to that, but uh, it might be a mistaken intuition there. But yeah, I uh, I don't know. I actually your example brings up another example of suffering that I think gives life some meaning, which is. Um, this thing called negative visualization that's also a part of stoicism i don't know if you've heard of this um i, I just i, I right just word, uh explained it isn't it um so yeah i, thought, I guess envisioning... i thought that's what, what i was trying <laughs> to explain <laughs> oh dude oh man my so i had in mind like when you um you like sit and you picture your life without something so like if if you didn't like if your wife wasn't around Right, or yeah. if you didn't have like your left foot or something yeah yeah right yeah, you like yeah. visualize not necessarily just like how bad everything yeah, can no, go that no, day right. but just like you're picture right. your life without something like yeah. even just like your fucking laptop or like you know you don't have access to clean water or, like yeah, things like yeah. that and that is sort of mental suffering you're undertaking um voluntarily and in order to make the rest of your day that much happier that much better mm-hmm. um and so maybe you could just get to that state with like better ideas that don't involve visualizing yourself deprived of things, which yeah. maybe causes some anguish. I don't know, but uh, that's sort of another aspect of suffering that I wouldn't want to get rid of. Yeah, and I, I guess when people uh, <laughs> invoke things, I literally thought that was exactly what I was saying, but I realized now I didn't put it that way. But in my mind, I was like, "Are you joking, dude? I just said that." Oh, that's so funny, man. But um, no. But so next time you undertake it, you can just visualize me. Yeah, yeah. Re- you stealing my arguments. You just said, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, no. But I guess the the idea for you know you need ups, you need downs to appreciate the ups and, and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, but the ups and downs can be so much better. Like the downs can be so much better. They don't have <laughs> yeah, to yeah, suck exactly. as bad, right? Yeah. But um. Yeah, so um, we're doing a full Lex Friedman slash Joe Rogan length <laughs> yeah. here, but I like it. So <laughs> I have one more article for you there where you write about moral cluelessness. Mm. And it just sounds like you're describing my ethical framework in general. But w- what is <laughs> what is moral cluelessness? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all a little morally clueless, I think. <laughs> um, but it's this... Uh, philosophy that's sort of coming out of the effective altruism commu- uh, community that is concerned with like the long run. So it's back to prediction, right? It's like the long run consequences of our actions. So um, there's uh, a branch of normative ethics, uh, consequentialism, which is concerned with like the consequences of our actions. Like that's what we should be concerned about. And we judge an, mm. an action based on the the consequences that it has. Um, and then, and then there's a particular idea that like, well, most of the time we're just considering short term consequences. Um, but in theory, like when should you stop cashing in your evaluation of the consequences? Like, don't, shouldn't we care about the consequences until for like the next 10 years, the next hundred years, the next billion years to like the heat death of the universe? Um, and so, because like, for example, what if your action, like, uh you know give someone a meal now but kills a hundred people in five years right you probably wouldn't call that action good Mm. 
Um, and so the argument here is like, well, we can't just arbitrarily stop considering the consequences after some randomly chosen period of time. We need to consider all the consequences of our actions. Um, but okay, as soon as you make that step, of course, now you're in, you're faced with the reality that you can't predict the future. And mm. so now it's fucking impossible to tell whether any action is good or bad because you don't know the consequences 10 years from now, let alone a billion years from now, right? So your action could save a million people now, but maybe it causes, um, maybe one of those people um, grows up to become the next Hitler or something. And now you're yeah. responsible for like the next thousand year Reich. Um, and that, you know, that would be bad. So, um, so some people's response to this is like, well, fuck, I guess we're morally clueless. Like we can't say anything is really good or bad. Um, uh and we're kind of screwed so the best thing we can do is like work on um things that uh we kind of know are going to be good which at least like keep us um in the game so like existential risks like um we should kind of we can't even say that like saving children in africa from malaria is good but we can uh say that like make developing ai safely is good because that's that could be like an existential risk um and so we should like all just work on that because we can't say anything else is good by this like moral calculus but that but that seems kind of silly too because i mean what's to say (laughs) that it's morally good that that we survive maybe it's better if the planet survives and some other species will grow and they will be better like it seems like it's a weird thing too there there is an asymmetric application of it um and this is where it gets it gets hard to like sort of give the case for it because it's it's kind of confusing to even state because like you said i mean there's um who's to say that like working on ai safety won't have unforeseen consequences that like go on to kill us or like why ai safety instead of um worrying about invasion from space aliens yeah yeah yeah. that could also be an existential risk so um anyway this tends to be an argument that is used to um to bolster the case for what's known as long-termism which is like this new moral philosophy that says most of our moral value lies in the far far future and so we should our moral consideration should be mostly focused on like what happens in the far far future and Mm. while present suffering sucks um it's just like not as big of a scale as like what's going to happen um from like basically now till the end of eternity and so we should be really concerned about that and like not so much about you know, the day-to-day suffering of people. And so moral cluelessness is kind of like one argument that's made in favor of this, which like, you know, well, we can't say even working on short-term things now is good. And so we might as well try and consider the whole long-term future in our moral considerations. Um, yeah. So anyway, so this article was just pushing back against this idea of moral cluelessness and trying to, um, I think Popper's got a really nice view on morality, which is, um, unfortunately, Popper kind of is only known in the wider world as, like, the dude who came up with falsification. And people just kind of pay lip service to, like, falsification. And then they're like, well, I understand Popper. But, you Mm. know, he did a lot of work in political philosophy and moral philosophy, etc. And um, I think one of his biggest insights was how much of our knowledge, including our moral knowledge, is problem-driven. It's problem-focused, right? So the problem comes first, we're faced with problems, and we're trying to generate sufficient knowledge to overcome that problem and then move on to the next problem. 
Um, and whether the domain is physics or morality or biology, whatever, it's, you know, it's all just problems. And so what I was trying to do is argue against moral cluelessness by taking a problem based view of ethics um, and, uh, and show why it breaks, why moral cluelessness yeah. kind of, kind of breaks down um, and why abiding by it indeed would kind of sever our ability to actually make moral progress. Um, because the whole point is to try and figure out like what doesn't work, what causes less and less suffering. Um, and we're, we're just trying to, to use the Deutschian's favorite word, we're trying to correct our errors over time, right? We're trying to see like what doesn't work, yeah. slowly make progress, incrementally make progress. And trying to optimize over the next billion years is antithetical to that goal because now there's no feedback that you can get, right? You're trying to optimize just based on our current knowledge now. You're trying to project all our actions out into the future, again, using like, crazy expected value calculus stuff but yeah, now there's no feedback you can get you can never you can't really increase your knowledge you can't know if you were wrong right so you're just making like a wild guess without a way to refute it and then we're going to put all our cards sort of in that um we're going to put yeah all our cards in <laughs> all our cards in that bin i don't know what the right yeah. analogy is we're gonna bucket, put all our pebbles yeah, in that shoe know. or whatever basket yeah. Yeah, fuck <laughs> But, but, um, but we're two and a half hours in. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's okay. But the analogies uh, are running thin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my initial reaction is that that's the most morally clueless thing I've ever heard. Uh, this kind of arguing. But, but also, and maybe you don't know the answer to that, but so would they deny, you think, that we have made moral progress objectively? Like, for instance, slavery once again. No, no, they would definitely acknowledge that. Um, but they would say, you know, now we've made, we're at this point where we can actually influence um, the future. Like back, you know, back in the day, we just didn't have the, we didn't have the means. We didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't sophisticated enough. Trying to like influence the, f the future um, was basically impossible. Um, but now we're at a point where we're like technologically sophisticated and stuff. We could blow ourselves up with nukes. We could develop powerful technology that like influencing, um, the course of human history is, is, uh, is not beyond our grasp or at least like, I mean, of course, everything we does, we do influences the course of human history, but they would argue like we can predict it, uh, to some, to some extent. Um, yeah. and so anyway, it all ties back into this morass of confusion around like prediction and um and progress and and et cetera, et cetera. yeah yeah no that's cool i i didn't think of that when i chose these articles but they all kind of uh converge on this same theme here and yeah um, as i'm as i'm talking about them i'm realizing like oh shit i just write about the same thing yeah, <laughs> yeah man. i was like oh my god um I, yeah i should uh i do want to give a shout so i mentioned long-termism there um and uh uh and um which of which like moral clearances and stuff is kind of a part but and that's sort of a new yeah philosophy coming out of the ea community but um vaden actually my co-host has gotten obsessed with this thing uh with this new philosophy of long term long termism has written like four epic blog posts um mm. trying to refute it so if people and he he deals with like the historicist objection and all this stuff so if if that probably will be out the fourth one will probably be out by the time we um by the time this is out so if people are curious about that i definitely encourage people to go read uh that series of blog posts because he uh i thought i got obsessed about it but he really 
<laughs> he really got into it and uh, wrote this like massive sequence of, of posts, which does a really good job yeah. of like, refuting a lot man of with the mission coming out of EA. Yeah, yeah, he, that's great. <laughs> yeah, he is definitely a man with the mission. Yeah, yeah, so, and definitely, um, um, definitely uh, send me that link, and I can I can use it in the show notes as nice. well. And uh, yeah, Ben. So uh, I have uh, a last a last question for you here today, and it's. Uh, it's not. I had one question from some Ben Chug guy who said, "What what's it like to be so confused all the time?" But yeah, <laughs> fuck that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Sounds like a non-universal explainer, real <laughs> <Tokyo> explainer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh, so uh, so the question is around this. What you alluded to here, effective altruism. And I have to to be honest, I'm uh, I know very little about it. I'm I'm not that interested in it. Maybe because of mm-hmm. that. Um, but as far as I understand, there's some critiques from the Deutschen perspective in general that that altruism, the, these kind of things, um, yeah, you you don't want to give things to people. You want to give them the possibility to to create for themselves. And and uh, um, yeah, you, you see how how illiterate I am on this. I I know nothing about it. But so the questions are. Uh, how they're kind of similar. How can the movement and or philosophy of effective altruism be improved? And the second question was, do you think the philosophy of effective altruism can be resolved with critical rationalism? If so, what would that look like? Um, so, the, mm. yeah, they're kind of merged together there. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it could be improved by basically ditching this Bayesian epistemology, uh, which I just think mm. is the wrong epistemology and is causing a lot of problems, especially now, because... Um, once you take those arguments seriously, um, it's very hard to not become radicalized by it, right? So, uh, so what I mean by that is, like, as soon as you take the idea of, like, acting based on sort of subjective probabilities and credences very seriously, now you're sort of inexorably led to actions which are basically the equivalent of like the pascal's mugging thing where you're very uncertain and you have like very low probabilities for certain things but the expected value can still be so high because like you can make up just so stories about how many people they can help right so i think the best um or the most instructive case for this which i find myself arguing against a lot these days is precisely the case of like the ai safety stuff right so in the community the argument there is um well experts have um some credence that agi will be developed in the next like 50 years or something um and if it went poorly if agi development goes poorly that could potentially either like wipe out humanity or it could like enslave us or something like that um and you can just get crazier and crazier with the sci-fi scenarios, like, you know, whatever you want to happen, Terminator style, whatever. Mm. Um, and and because, of course, you can't rule those things out, right? And because the universe is got a long future ahead of it, um, there could be, like, trillions and trillions of human beings. Um, and so, basically, when you start reasoning like this, all your actions start to be dominated by these like crazy far future sci-fi expected value driven scenarios mm. and you just can't escape it 
right? Um, and so I think dropping the requirement that rationality consists of like assigning these kind of just credences to these random things um, and rather consists of just conjecturing ideas and criticizing the shit out of them and incrementally making progress over time trying to increase knowledge um, would go a long way towards helping the community sort of reorient and just refocus really on just like reducing reducing the suffering of um, a lot of people and that and we sort of know uh, we have knowledge about how to do that and the, the community like i don't it originated maybe 10 or 12 years ago now and i think at the beginning um they were doing a great job of this right it was like they were very focused on just like the developing world um reducing the suffering of like animals in factory farms and just like helping people um who were like in pain um a lot just try and like reduce that pain with like effective methods you know we know how to do that like you Mm -hmm. know cluster headaches and and things like this just awful shit people have to deal with um but then over time these sort of initiatives have been replaced by yeah these kind of crazy sci-fi scenarios and it's like kind of heartbreaking um honestly so i think I, you know, and I'm a little doubtful this will happen, but I think, yeah, sort of dropping the the emphasis on the Bayesian epistemology and just returning to like, how can we, um, how can we just like reduce suffering of 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 people? How can we solve these problems? Uh, would go a long way to helping them sort of reori- reorient themselves in in the right direction. Um, and I think would honestly just do a lot more good than sort of what's going on right now um i you know at the beginning i think they did a good job of pointing out that like philanthropy and altruism while they were traditionally dominated by like uh religious ideas and ideas of just like uh, you should only help those you can see like your local soup kitchen and stuff i think ea effective altruism did a good job of recognizing that this is like it's an actual problem to be solved here right and like we have to develop the right knowledge to be able to um help to be able to like reduce malaria rates and help people um out of poverty and um cure terrible diseases that are afflicting millions of people mm. um and i think that was like a great mission it was a great idea right it was bringing like the scientific method to like solving these problems and generating the required knowledge but it sort of slipped into this crazy um bayesian trap <laughs> and now it's like yeah. really focused on this long-termism stuff which yeah we didn't touch on ex- explicitly but yeah definitely check out vaden's posts about that and it's uh it's pretty sad honestly it's it's definitely driven me away from the community like i i wouldn't call i wouldn't call myself a part of it anymore really honestly mm. um and uh which yeah is is, is kind of sad but um i think it's, it's also one of the reasons why i'm possibly on the more disagreeable side when it comes to uh some of the stuff from the critical rationalists or just like why i'm so quick to be skeptical of you know whether it's universal explainer or coercion or libertarianism or you know whatever ideas have currency in like this community these days just because um you know i got like involved in ea and uh and sort of once i was exposed to different arguments sort of snapped out of it and realized Mm -hmm. like holy shit like if you really identify too much with the community it's so easy to let yourself sort of be blinded by the intentions and like forget to forget to really critically examine the arguments and so it caused like a bit of a an identity crisis for me and so since then i've been so hesitant to like Mm. identify with any like any group of people any set of ideas like i'm i'm 
trying to be as critical <laughs> as of yeah. everything basically and just relate to like individuals as individuals right like don't think of myself as a part of a group or yeah. subscribing to like a certain person or a certain set of ideas and stuff because that it really scared me like how much i had been taken in by a lot of these ideas which is why i write about it all the time right like, I, i'm interested in writing about ideas that i yeah. at one time in my life would have found persuasive and now am worried about um so anyway that was a long ass rant but no that's no my, that's, my that's, answer, yeah. that's interesting to hear it i mean i um I can relate to that. I, I was super into evolutionary psychology uh, oh, two years ago, and I made a, a full turn. So I, I exactly know what you mean. I was arguing to the point where, where girls in my class were crying. Uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, shit. so I know, I know what you mean. But, but you know what? I think the solution for EA would be to get Michael Golding to read their stuff um for all their promos and stuff and everyone would just would just go with it right yeah seriously yeah. he'll just read them like yeah. a new mission statement yeah i'll, and, I'll uh, pitch it i'll be like yeah makes sense man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh is he a practicing therapist he's, he's a, a like, practicing psychiatrist oh yeah oh yeah i think Fuck, he oversees yeah. uh he's like the head of all correctional facilities in california or something psychiatric in, oh it's fuck he lives in california yeah. I think right, so. I'm going to book myself in a That's where he were, Yeah, that I, I think I've heard something like that. But um so yeah, yeah, he's a badass, man. He he yeah, he's seriously. really down in the uh uh trenches there, which is really cool. <laughs> but um yeah, but awesome. so yeah, I I um I actually um yeah, th- thanks a lot for this chat, man. I'm I'm starting to see now how much biology can affect uh psychology because i would like to keep talking but i think i'm gonna faint now i actually need to fucking eat but uh but this is a great time and uh before i take any links for where people can find you more i just want to end on to tie this conversation together the whole idea of evolutionary psychology i forget to say uh from deutsch he said something like the the um, uh the amount to which um your behavior is genetically determined. It's entirely determined by creativity. So, so I just thought that's a nice point. And to go back to the hunger thing, how much of hunger drives you to do something is determined by your creativity and the ideas you create around that sensation. And that goes for, for all voluntary behavior. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. I mean, there's yeah. people who, I guess there's people who like voluntarily starve themselves to, to death there's people who go on fat yeah famine strikes i think majid nawaz actually just went on um a hunger strike for the uyghurs jesus in china so so there you go i mean that was definitely not pre pre-programmed into his uh no his no. psychology um yeah. so yeah yeah that's go. awesome so where can people find more uh more found out find uh, where can people find out more <laughs> about you dude the more mayhem yeah um I, yeah, I have a website, I guess. Uh, you probably just Google my name. I think it would come up. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just benchug.com. But that's it, more uh, more academic stuff is there, I guess. Except uh, there's some writing there as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm I'm newly... I'm newly... On, well, maybe not so new anymore. But I'm like six months into my Twitter journey. I finally, dis- I finally joined this last Christmas. And uh, yeah, I'm having some fun there, man. Honestly, I kind of thought... Some piping hot takes, it was like dude. The, yeah <laughs> i kind of thought it was like the work of the devil before you know i was like i'm never joining up to this it's just gonna hijack all my attention but uh mm-hmm. yeah i have some good times there so um creating controversy you know Do yeah and and the podcast i i think you have a new website too right 
Oh, we do. Yeah. So there's incrementspodcast.com and we got some fancy artwork for people there. How relevant it is to the actual show is unclear, but the pictures look cool. <laughs> so that's all that really matters. Yeah, no, it does. And uh, once again, I urge everyone who enjoys uh, this conversation to go check out Increments podcast because it's genuinely my new favorite podcast. And I think you guys have great chemistry and you're um, like I said on Twitter, you're next level, and I, I really learn a lot listening to you. So, um, yeah, thanks again for for coming on, Ben. This uh, this was great. Sick, yeah. Thanks, dude, for for having me. You may have replaced uh, Baden as my uh, favorite <laughs> host, so uh, we'll see what happens. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. <laughs>